All right. Welcome to the next episode of The Path Forward. I am I am very very excited because finally we are connecting with one of the one of the greatest minds that I know, true pioneer, Mr. Mike Mackey. Mike, do I have you there? Yes, sir. I'm here. And glad to be here. All right. And Mike, maybe just a, a brief introduction about you. I mean, I always think that your expertise is really around, you know, agriculture, organic agriculture. And when I yeah. when I talk to friends or other people about you, I always sort of like to boast or introduce you as having been one of the real pioneers and founders of bringing permaculture to North America and the United States. And, and what grew out of that would probably most people that are listening, instead of understanding permaculture, is, is organic farming and organic produce Yeah, came out of that. And, and you got to be a, a part of those movements in the earliest days. Is that fair? Yes, I'm a, a real OG, both an old guy and organically grown. <laughs> I like it. I like it. And, um, you know, just to give people a sense, as this is the first time we're introducing uh, Mike or, or oftentimes, you know, lovingly, adoringly known as Mackie, you'll hear both used. He, he is going to be kind of our correspondent in the field. Mackie is definitely a pioneer in a lot of fields and on the cutting edge of some really interesting ideas that are going on in the world. And to circle people back, you know, the core of A Path Forward and this program is really to introduce the most important ideas that I've come across in my life. And Mike and I have a really interesting history. We can get into some of that later and and uh, how and where we met but he is the individual that introduced me to biochar biochar and carbon sequestration uh, and how we actually can practice sequestering carbon in our everyday lives what's most exciting to me about this today is a tangible solution to climate change. And that is going to be probably the primary idea that we're going to talk about today. And I'll get into that and we'll kind of drill into that and why that could possibly be such a practical solution for for even you listening. So Mike, introduce us a little bit. Is there anything you want to say about yourself or how you got to this topic and where you're at today? Sure. I'm a child of the 60s, so we became dissatisfied as we looked at mainstream agriculture and the way our food was produced because when you sort of evaluate your life and all the parts of it, one of the first questions that comes up is where does our food come from and the system that we get it from, how how sustainable is that? So asking that question in the early 1970s led me to organic agriculture I'm just going to sort of put some dots out here and then connect them. I mean, the word organic, you think, well, it typically has a definition of what you don't do. We don't use pesticides. We don't use chemical fertilizers. But what's the positive definition of that? Because uh, a conventional person, a chemist, would say, well, 
organic chemistry is carbon chemistry. It has everything to do with carbon. In fact, that's the definition of organic chemistry, which is different than organic agriculture. So when, we, when we're looking to bridge those concepts, we see that carbohydrates, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen combined together are the, are the very essence of life as we know it. So mm. um, studying that as a layperson, but a passionately curious layperson, has led me first to organic agriculture and then to this study of carbon in the soil. I just this hour, in fact, uh, came from a, an online uh, discussion group. And one of the essences that we're discussing is that soil carbon is really important. Plants derive their carbon from the soil and also from the carbon dioxide in the air. So a healthy plant is able to pull down, draw down more carbon dioxide, car and, and also known as a greenhouse gas, Mm -hmm. and bring it into the biomass of the plant. What happens then? Well, the plant eventually decomposes, gets eaten, gets shit out, it, it cycles. And in most climates, well, no, it varies from climate to climate. Mm -hmm. uh, in yeah, the north, in the, in the Sitka spruce zone, for instance, on the, on the coast of North America where, where I grew up, grew up um, it has the highest organic matter levels of, of any place on the planet. And the reason for that is because it's cool and, and moist and the organic matter, the decomposed material, just stacks up. So you walk through the old growth forest and you're up to your knees and duff and that's, that's all well and good. But most of that carbon doesn't get, it's, it's stored in that semi-decomposed form. Now let's move our our vision are to the tropics where it's warm, also moist, but quite warm. There, a tree falls in the forest in, in the Peruvian Amazon where I spend time, and a few years later, it's gone. It's been recycled into other plant material, typically. It, it literally, the, that, that temperature sort of burns it up, doesn't it? It, it? it all happens faster, closer to the equator. Yes, it speeds up the activity of the, of the microorganisms that mm that eat it, everything from ants to fungi to bacteria, and it becomes available again to the plant through this microbial cycle, and the plants just suck it up, literally. In cooler climates, that doesn't happen so much. In fact, when you go way north, you get the peat soils that are accumulated, not a huge amount of growth, but it stacks up over the years because it's not breaking down and being recycled. It's just hmm. accumulating, and then because of the acidification, it becomes well peat bogs, the 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 taiga, uh, yeah. these very forests of Alaska, of, across Eurasia, Patagonia. Um, so that's fascinating. We're in the food production business, and we like to see our carbon moving through the system. That is into our corn plants, into our bean plants, and into us. <laughs> so we have. There's a couple of terms I want to introduce, and then we'll get to biochar. Yeah. One is labile, L-A-B-I-L-E, and that means carbon that is ready to be recycled. It's, it's, it's easily decomposed and, and recycled carbon, labile carbon is. The mm. other term is recalcitrant, and you've heard of recalcitrant children. Well, recalcitrant okay. carbon is that which doesn't readily break down. Now, 
all these things are in the mix. You've got the carbon of a recently decomposed leaf. It just, it gets merged back into the system. A tree trunk in a cooler climate might sit there for, I, mean, I come out of the red cedar zone where where a tree falls in the forest, a cedar tree, and it, and it could be five or six centuries laying there mm -hmm. before it decomposes. So there's a huge range of variation. That's recalcitrant. So just, just to repeat some of that, make sure myself and everyone's kind of wrapping their head around those two important terms. Labile would be like a leaf, like you said. We're used to seeing leaves fall even in you know our yards or cities or in the countryside and decompose. And that yeah, happens by next much summer, faster. where do they go? Right, yeah. right. And then whereas that, you know, western red cedar or fallen tree trunk in the forest, that's taking decades or centuries, and that's recalcitrant. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. That's right. So what we do when we're farming, we're stirring the soil. Well, let's go, let's go back a, a couple centuries before mm. we began farming. What we had were fires that swept across the prairies. Uh, that swept through the forests as we're having so much. I'm in I'm in a totally smoked in Southern Oregon uh, afternoon right here. Yeah, you were um, saying it's it's Indian summer. Talk about that again a little bit. What does that mean? And yeah, Indian summer. The term comes from this time of year when typically the Native Americans would set the forests or the prairies on fire because they were dry and mature and they could get a a good burn. Why do that? Um, in the case of the Great Plains, it was to hold the encroaching forest back, increase the grass production, and that made better forage for buffaloes, and it also made the buffalo easier to find and catch. Hmm. In, say, the on the West Coast, in an oak forest where acorns are the crop of interest, and deer, for instance, those two things are main food sources, by burning the understory, it keeps competing vegetation down, and... Think about the, the the trees of the Climax Forest here. Douglas fir, uh, ponderosa pine, redwood, sequoia. They have this super thick bark, which is actually, once a tree gets to a certain size, it's fire resistant. So when the fire comes through, it scorches, kills all the little guys, kills the grasses, weeds, uh, you know, shrubs, forbs, and, 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 and that nutrient, that carbon, and the and the mineral part of the of the biomass becomes available to this really green succulent crop. So the deer wander through this park-like setting. The berries grow um, as as if uh, as if by uh, cultivation, and you get this ecosystem that when the European settlers came, they go, "Wow, this place is a park." Um, <laughs> actually, it was a managed ecosystem mm -hmm. through fire, and. Wow. I want to point out a very significant difference that really it's it's a good starting point here because when you burn something, uh, a piece of wood, it turns to ash, right? That mm -hmm. ash is just the mineral part. All the carbon has gone away. The combustion process releases carbon dioxide and a couple other things into the air, and all you have left is the minerals that were collected by the plants. That's a very small percentage. Hmm. So, um, so the when carbon we make goes a, away. a campfire, like we're all you know familiar with a campfire yeah. or fire outdoors, and we're piling on wood or in a fireplace, all that carbon is being released up into the atmosphere, really, it's at a gone. campfire. Yeah. And then the ash left in the in the fire ring at a campfire, that's minerals mostly. 
That's correct. That that's right. And that's you know the the succeeding plants will of course use that for their nutrition and wow. it's not a bad thing. But we're trying at this point in history to um, build upon something that we learned down in the Amazon basin 30, 40 years ago. Um, they found these areas and in a, a tropical forest, when you remove the above ground biomass, because it has cycled everything into that biomass, the soils are not rich in carbon at all. That's why this uh, shifting agriculture where people can farm for a couple of years, they get the nutrients that are in the minerals and the carbons and the carbon has been uh, largely depleted and then they go on to a, a new place. But they found these areas in the Amazon basin, hundreds of thousands of acres in fact. And the more they look, the more they're finding. We've got some new areas that we that I've just been turned on to in the mid Amazon that's nobody's known about before. But from rumors we're gonna be able to get down there here in the next few months and have a good look at them. What they found is these areas of rich black soil in an otherwise very poor soil. And and when archaeologists began digging into these to try to figure out, was it windblown? Eh, not likely. Was it um, deposited by river flooding? It's above the floodplain, typically. These are, these are upland areas. And so they began cutting into these, um, and a, a meter or up to two meters deep is this rich black soil. And along with carbon, charcoal, not ash, charcoal, they're finding pottery sherds and fish bones to a point that one of the cool things about carbon is you can do carbon-14 dating. You can figure out when that carbon was grown. Right. So you can go to a campfire in a cave and, and figure out when those people were there through the, the radioactive degradation rate of, of, of carbon called carbon-14, which is on the order of centuries. So it's a way of dating things. That's yeah, our best our best method, right? To test yeah, any yeah. prehistoric or, or ancient history. And I and I just want to loop back real quick. A couple of points yeah. you just brought up, Mike, is that you know, we started early on talking about that quicker cycle in a tropical zone or closer to the equator. So we're in South America, you know, on or around the Amazon and, and current day, you know, in the last few years, people have been aware, I think, particularly in the West and in the industrialized world of, you know, the, if you will, protests or alarm around the kind of farming being done in Brazil. Well, you mm -hmm. explained just a moment ago, right? These aren't soils that are carbon rich. And all of a sudden no, there are no. these discoveries of these soils and tell, tell the myth, you know, this is, this is the exciting part. So these are largely in the Brazilian Amazon, um, in the Rio Negro and areas around Manaus, but we're finding them. Well, the more we look, the more we find. Hmm. Um, and we're sort of doing this forensic forestry and you know, the, the conclusion that we're coming to that these weren't just, a few people in loincloths walking around in a in a in a paradise. These were managed forests. People were cultivating, but they weren't doing it as Europeans would clear the land, plant a crop. They would do it in a very patch-like, in a very diverse, a very permaculture sort of way. They these folks invented permaculture. <laughs> There's a well, it's it's a fascinating area of study. But below that, below the ground, are these hundreds of thousands of acres of terra preta, dark earth soils. And that got curiosity going. And this is really all in the last 
few decades. Yeah. We, we finally explained, yeah, that terra preta. I just want to get to the, the fun for listeners, too, of, you know, and this is a tangent, but something to understand. We've all heard of this legend of El Dorado, right? Or, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the great civilizations of the Amazon, literally the stories from Spanish conquistadors that gave rise to the Amazon warrior, female warriors. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, these, the, the first Spanish explorers that came down, you know, within 50 years of Columbus, they, they really got around and looked around, and yet they got themselves in, in a jam, and so they were coming down the Amazon, came up, up from Colombia, up over Venezuela, and came down into the Amazon, and these guys were starving because they didn't know how to, well, they were conquistadors, they didn't know how to gather food very well. Hmm. And they came upon these extensive miles, not only along the river, where you expect to find fisher folk to be settled in their villages, but they got out and for miles back, they found these, this civilization um, that they called El Dorado. Hmm. Of course, they were looking for minerals, but one of the features of the Amazon basin where they were, where they found this, 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 quickly lost city, it was kind of like the coast of, uh, of North America. The folks there used wood and organic material. They didn't have, in the Amazon basin, you don't have rocks mm-hmm. to speak of. Uh, where I work in Iquitos, we have to import gravel from 300 miles to even have gravel. Wow. <laughs> so it's, it's all alluvial plain and floodplain. So they didn't build pyramids and roads and such as we know them but they built villages and civilizations that were able through enhancing these uh, otherwise not rich soils through creating their terra preta, which we have since 2007 renamed biochar and be, began a whole field of applied science around this. And, you know, there's thousands of papers now on, on biochar and its application just in the last decade uh, and a half that, that have come out. So, you can Google biochar and it's a beautiful rabbit hole. Yeah, it is. Ahead, there bro. is quite a, a, a rabbit hole in there <laughs> under biochar. And I want to, I think that's our path right now is I want to elaborate, just paint that picture of the romance a little bit because it is so tantalizing of this myth and then bridge that forward to where we are into biochar and, and carbon farming. Yeah. But just really quick, you know, so that you wrap your heads around any of the movies or stories that you've seen about these elaborate, you know, ancient South American civilizations along the Amazon. I mean, there's firsthand accounts written, you know, by priests and and conquistadors or the, the priests that traveled with them that, that wrote, there were these incredibly colorful, elaborate, huge civilizations. But they all com- they all composted. Right. They got <laughs> composted. Exactly. All their wood, their society, like you said, there's no rock and stone, but, but it, they yeah. shouldn't have been able to have these societies. That's why there, it's such a great mystery is there's nothing in the soil. Look, if you have a big society, you have to feed people the bottom line, yeah. right? And in fact, they, these things go together. Yeah. You can, you can raise a population 
only if you can increase and, and sustain the food base. Yeah, and so the, the huge mystery has been, well, for decades and decades since there were, you know, shards of pottery and little bits of discoveries, you know, even in the 20s and the 30s is kind of what we're familiar with or the romance of those stories. They just said, well, this, this couldn't exist. You couldn't grow the food for these people. And then you discover right. their real gold, right? The conquistadors were after the gold, but the real gold... Yeah. And which relates to us today is this terra pretes that they knew to burn and carbonize this, what, the biomass we were talking about before and turn it into the soil. It's, it's mysterious, Will, the, mm. because we sort of backtrack said, how long, okay, here we have a, a meter deep black soil and we know the rate of carbon decomposition and, and, and it's sort of half-life and there is a kind of a half-life of of uh, even recalcitrant carbon, hmm. like 300 years, 500 years, depending. And and how did they do this? Because the oldest carbon is only no more than 2,000 years old, 2,500 years old. So hmm. they achieved something that was not just burning the trash out back of the village. This was, had to be a deliberate thing, and yet we do not know how they did it. I believe that one of the keys to the mystery and it's still a mystery we don't have anybody who's still doing it to we have some suggestions but there's pottery so they were doing something that was able to achieve the temperatures to make a halfway decent pottery so they had some kind of kilns and my own guess is that they were using some simple kilns to to make this char and and yet it's so abundant and it doesn't, you know, how does it get to be a meter deep? They didn't dig yeah. with shovels. They didn't have shovels. Um, they, it had to be the earthworms. So there's a biological factor of this too. These were the, the main protein for these folks was, was fish and, and still is today besides the crazy poultry farms that they have mm. in the Amazon where everything's imported and, and, but still really, River fish is a big deal. Fish coming out yeah, of the rivers, coming right? Out of the rivers, and there's a lot of them. Um, so you have this source of phosphorus, nitrogen. Mike, I think you're breaking up a bit there, but what I understood was that these ancient cultures had the basically elements of fertilizer with their river fish diet in order to till and turn it into this biochar terra preta uh, and grow their societies. Um, would you talk a little bit more about the aspect of fire and creating that char and even, you know, modern day Brazil? Okay. Well, it's, you know, you we have these stories about the, and they're true, uh, particularly on the, uh, eastern, southeastern side of the Amazon, where they're clearing these massive areas for corn and soybeans in Brazil, um, mostly. And those fires are are the sort of the modern-day version of people going in and trying to turn forests at a very industrial scale. But a lot of this is smallholders, families going out, claiming a bit of ground, cutting down the trees, burning them up. They make charcoal for their own fuel purposes. Mm -hmm. I like to use the, the, just to switch back to the old world for just a moment. Yep. Up until the, the Iron Age, 
Yes, this is what I want to talk about, the forests of Europe. The forests of Europe, the Mediterranean, the Middle East, the Near East, and they were forested. North Africa were forested in historic times, but when we discovered how to smelt copper, bronze, it was trees made into charcoal that enabled them to achieve the temperatures to smelt those namesake metals for which the ages of our history are noted. The Bronze Age, every ounce of bronze was a forest that was cut and made into charcoal to be able to smelt that bronze. The Copper Age was exactly the same. You can't achieve the temperatures for smelting without charcoal, which is a concentrated form of carbon that's still able to burn. So this is before they had discovered coal and learned how to make coke and all that, which really kicked the Iron Age into gear um, and the Industrial Revolution. But before that, it was charcoal made by poor folks, by removing forests, and they did it indiscriminately because they were seeing things kind of in a in a pre-industrial way. Oh, this forest will make I'll make into charcoal and I'll sell it and I'll make and, and so they and so they did. There was very little in the way of selection of which trees to leave because one of my sayings in forestry it's not so much what you take, it's what you leave behind that's going to determine the trajectory of the next forest development. Hmm. So the Mediterranean type climates didn't bounce back. And particularly, um, then you bring in the goats and sheep and they eat all the little trees that want to grow back. So instead of what the Native Americans did in North America burning, we overgrazed and achieved the same net effect. The forests declined and did not regenerate well. And, and then the climate changed following that. So we have this slow incremental climate change that is sort of underlaid by actual climate change that's been varying since little ice ages uh, you know we've it's none of this we don't have to go very far back in history the the last little ice age was in the 1300s not that long ago i just want to talk about that 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 point us a little bit to this sense that one of the really interesting things two things that, that we've brought up so far and that you've talked about is that we're talking about fire all along and and these kinds of fires and and this you know ages of civilization if you will or western and european civilization right. have led us to climate change right this anthropocene we're clearly having an effect through fire right up to the combustion engine right and the entire oil industry yeah. what's really interesting is that biochar is a solution that's related to fire. And and I think that's powerful because, look, fire is how we got here, and it's a huge part of our culture and industry. But there's, it's like another side to the flame, right? Yeah. Or another side to the coin. Yes, yeah, swords into plowshares in this case. So yeah, uh, let's talk the- about that. Let's talk and make and make <laughs> that connection for folks of why are we talking about fire and, you know, potential solution and impact on climate change? What happens, you know, to, let's talk about pyrolysis and this different type of fire and when you make charcoal and you use it in a different way and yeah. put it in the soil. Let's 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 get there uh, through the Great Plains. Mm. Uh, the the fires that the that the Native Americans or the lightning started that burned that, that kept the, the the great prairies open for the for the buffalo 
when the fire comes through, it it burns the surface, but it also because the fire zone is very shallow, it's also the roots are dying, and the, and that carbon goes into a more much more of a stable soil organic matter, SOM as it's known, is is a semi-labile carbon. So as things decompose, they form some very complex organic molecules. It's hmm. it's said, I I haven't seen one, but uh, a humus molecule can be almost visible molecule can be almost visible to the human eye. They get such big conglomerates of carbon. Now wow. we come in with our plows and we bust the sod. The sod busters came in and began breaking that soil. And in farming, we have this this base of since the last ice age of this beautiful black Midwestern Great Plains soils that were that were created through the root decomposition. So the carbon part didn't all get burned at the surface, but it did get cycled into this deep through the roots and broke down. So when the settlers came to the Great Plains, they go, wow, once you bust the sod here, this this grows wheat, corn like crazy. But it, the problem it, it with that is... all of us in the United States. I mean, this is some of the, yeah. the greatest farmland in in the world yes that and uh, the great eurasian soils right. of of the ukraine and 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 russia which actually you may have heard the term chernozem soils Cher, cherny means black ozera means soil these are the black soils that were created in the same way as the great plains in in across eurasia same principles applied this carbon got down into the soil. Now we come through and begin stirring it, and it's like blowing on a fire. So we add oxygen through plowing, through tillage, and that carbon breaks down, releases into our plants. We remove our plants. So we're doing on an incremental annual basis the removal of the carbon. And now soils in the Midwest that might have started at 5 or 6% SOM, soil organic matter, organic, are now down to two. And there comes a point when that organic matter isn't doing its job. And that job is, now we'll get to biochar because in its in its purest form, carbon, pure carbon, 70% or, or, or better, if you take a, a burnable material, a corn stalk or a tree limb or a leaf or grass and bring it to kindling temperature when it would be burning, but, you, but you've, you've reduced the oxygen to practically nothing. What happens then is you get a carbonization process. The volatile gases start literally boiling off this material and picture a vessel that you put your organic matter in. Now you get it really hot, right up to kindling temperature. The gases come off and they begin to burn on the outside of these chambers. And pyrolysis is a controlled oven for carbonizing material. And that can be done with a whole range of things from from wheat stalks to hemp stalks to uh, wood chips to uh, whatever you can fit into your into the particular vessel that you're doing this in. But pyrolysis is by definition um, the combustion or the semi-combustion in the presence of very low oxygen levels. And what you get from that is a is a charcoal. Yeah, let's talk. Let me just talk a little bit about that, about getting to that material and just kind of how I come to it, just to help people wrap their heads around it. You know, I think most of yeah. us, we see charcoal probably at, at barbecue time, right? Like most people yep. are seeing charcoal briquettes. 
you know, here in the United States, it's Kingsford or uh, if you like fancy barbecue like me, you know, lump charcoal. But I've seen, you know, pictures and videos and even through you or people making biochar in some ways, like they'll use a shipping container, literally stock full yeah. of branches and and pieces and chunks of trunks, you know, all full of wood and they'll light it on fire. Mm -hmm. And then they basically you just dissipate that fire you just keep it down at a real slow burn so it kind of burns off everything else except the carbon and then you slowly just you know starve it of oxygen yep. right and then it goes out it's a fire in a box or or in you know an oven that looks like a, a ceramic hourglass kind of shaped um fire pit and and now we've learned ways to take these secondary gases Right. And, and the exhaust from the fire, let's just talk a little bit about pyrolysis, mm -hmm. paralysis, excuse me, and pyrolysis. There we go. There I, go. I, I'm you. learning it along with everyone here. There <laughs> we go. Pyrolysis. Nice. And, uh, and they can second burn that exhaust so that there's very little exhaust. And then we're left with, as you said, yeah. this really pure carbon or charcoal. Is that right? Yes. Now that process that you just described actually releases CO2. So there's a trade-off. We're getting a percent of stable carbon in the form of charcoal, but we're burning these combustible gases. So there is a, there's a kind of a, a balance there of, of what you get and what it costs in terms of carbon to, uh, to get there. Yeah. And I, and I think that's one of the big criticisms that you'll see, but, but there's a lot of advances now to even burn those gases a second or third time. Isn't that right? That they're somewhat combustible or to reuse them so that you're really releasing very little CO2 or other greenhouse gases for especially the amount of charcoal or pure carbon that you're, that you're getting. Is that accurate where the technology is? It, it is. And I'll give you an example of some folks that I, I know and, and who are, a lot of people have taken this idea that, Plants need carbon dioxide. They love carbon dioxide. When right, in the carboniferous forest days, when we had horsetails that were 40 feet tall and with, with trunks on them like trees, it was because our, our CO2 levels were so high. Plants love this. It provides them an easy access to the carbon that they incorporate through their carbohydrates in, in, into their bodies. So now picture you've got your pyrolysis unit and it's burning away nice and clean. You just see heat ripples coming off it. But it's not just heat, it's, it's CO2. Now capture that and bubble it into a, a pond and grow algae in that pond. So now you've taken all the CO2 that would be going to the atmosphere and you put it into an aquatic plant environment and the algae just go crazy. So. Yeah, you're you're super stimulating that that algae, you're, and now you're, you're growing algae, yeah. which has all kinds of uses, even yes. including fuel. But there's a lot of big research with big funding around algae. I'm I'm sure people have seen some of that. So that's a fascinating parent. Yeah. Okay, R real quick, real quick. There has been discovered, and folks might have seen this uh, a few years ago. They discovered that a red algae. Uh, there are you know there's four or five types of, of algae, and, and a red algae, a, a rhodophyta, has the ability when cows eat it 
to reduce their methane production by up to 90%. Wow. That's huge because, as you probably know, methane is 30 times the destructive greenhouse gas that mm -hmm. carbon dioxide is. So if we can take that CO2 and stimulate the production of a range of and we've got a we've got to and improve their nutrition we have an incredible kind of a permaculture dream come true although it's technical it's it's taking one waste and turning it into the raw material and resource for another and then moving that into yet a, a tertiary into a, into a into a third use um, we're about to revolutionize how we do the business of agriculture yeah. and it started with this negative definition of organic what we don't do to where we're figuring out some amazing practices that are that are truly revolutionizing not just organic agriculture but agriculture as a whole yeah and i i just want to uh, just start something we'll probably revisit but just to emphasize why this is so important and 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 is tangible for all of us you know in terms of climate change impacts I think it's pretty clear in, in the research and, you know, tell me how you think otherwise, Mike, but that the energy sector is the number one contributor. But but changing and shifting the energy sector, there's a huge investment going on there and it's absolutely critical. It's needed, but that's at large scale, right? We don't yeah. all run power plants, you know, in our neighborhoods right. or, you know, there's there's one for a city or, or a town or even not for a town, right? They're in a region yeah. And that is happening and has to happen. But what's number two is agriculture and our food production. And and let's talk about how once you have this, you know, clean carbon, this biochar, what what do we do with that? I mean, why is it beneficial? Let's loop that back to the to the soil. Yeah. That, yeah. Good. Because when we take charcoal and put it into soil, it's not a an nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium nutrient, as we typically see on a fertilizer bag. Carbon in the soil is doing, stable carbon, recalcitrant carbon in the soil is doing a different thing. One, it operates, I, I like to use the metaphor of a rechargeable battery. Picture a piece of a plant, a stem, and you carbonize that. The skeleton of the plant is still there with the all the plumbing, the huge internal surface area that was part of that plant's structure. That's now carbonized and operates like a, a super intricate battery. And that carbon, because it's been carbonized, has a weak ionic charge. So nutrients that are coming down through the soil in solution when it rains or when you irrigate are on their way to the ocean, right? They tend to keep moving. Plants can only grab so much of them. If we have a biochar in the soil, it holds on to those nutrients ionically kind of like magnetically you might say and the plant roots go down and find that and it becomes this like the electric cars <laughs> of the of the of the vegetable world yeah the other thing and 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 it goes and it, and it renews over and over because it's a rechargeable battery another aspect of this is it just increases the water holding and the you know the ideal soil not only holds water but it drains well it's kind of a paradox. We want soil that holds water, but but allows oxygen to flow in as well. So we're looking for that that perfect permeability. And the third factor is at the microscopic level, these little pieces of biochar, say, is as small as a rice grain, typically, or even smaller. 
at every scale, they serve as the habitat for uh, beneficial microbes who ordinarily during drought or flooding, um, they, it gives them a place where they can sort of hide out and wait till spring and the conditions and then they repopulate the soil again. So it's this, it's, it adds a, a biological resilience to the soil. It's really remarkable. And the, and the more we look at this, the more we see, oh my God, this is, a, this is a, a real deal. Now the problem is, if you just take pure raw biochar and in oh, uh, 08, we had a national biochar conference in, in Boulder, Colorado, and the Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Bilsack, came out and did the keynote and said, we're so excited at USDA, Department of Agriculture is gonna, we're gonna do, we're gonna set 23 research stations on researching biochar, and, and so off they raced, and they took raw charcoal and poured it in the soil and said, ah, oh, that didn't help anything. Or, or helped very little, they, right? It helped, it helped Or helped bit. very little. Yeah, did some of the, it the helps aspects. Two, it helps two years later. It helps right. two years later, three years later, even better. Four years later, even better, because it needs to be incorporated into the soil. Now, how do we jumpstart that? We load the biochar, is, 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 is a term of art. Mm -hmm. That is, we co-compost it with manure. We, we will add nutrients. So when we're putting, we're charging that rechargeable battery. So when it goes in the soil, it doesn't draw down nutrients to charge itself as it wants to do. It, is, it comes pre-charged and loaded. So it delivers a, its nutrient value to the plants year one, that year. And for farmers, this year is every, you know, this, this, it's all about this year. Yeah. It's very hard in modern commodity agriculture to say, well, in five years, everything's going to be better. They just can't, the system doesn't allow them to think in those terms. Yeah. That's why they're running down the available soil carbon and not regenerating it because one, they don't know how, and maybe before that, they don't know why. Yeah. Because we measure everything from the fertilizer bag. Let's, let's paint those, those two pictures a little bit. Yeah, I just I just want to paint those pictures of, you know, where this is our food. I mean, think about literally wherever you are in your day, what you ate last, what you might eat next. And if you're not just in the United States, but pretty much anywhere in the industrialized world and beyond, there, there's kind of two pictures, although there's more organic farming that's intentional organic farming, I guess. Um, here, but let's paint a picture of where our food comes from, what the soil's like, like how much they're tilling it and re-fertilizing in the yeah. Midwest, in those plains, versus the picture of, of turning uh, a carbon and organic farming, just so people can get a sense connected to their own food. Yeah, real, real quickly, I'll, I'll preface yeah. that by some of the early biochar research was done in Africa, and mm. they reported, we tripled our yield. But the yields were so miserable, so so meager. The tripling those yields weren't very meaningful. So when when we, so they weren't loading the biochar. They were just putting it in, and it was able to grab something out of the rainwater that was that was coming down during the flood times. And wow. and and that was where the we early excitement came from. Then we when we tried to replicate this into richer soils, we just weren't getting the response that we thought we should. And it's because of this priming or this loading factor that we don't take into account because after a couple of years the momentum the, the builds and and these soils become very very rich and the difference between the soils that we've been plowing the organic matter down 
the semi-labile soils is that this is stable carbon. This is going to last for centuries. This is the terra preta of, of five centuries from now. So if we can somehow, and here's the, here's the organic agriculture $64,000 question, and I think we've got the answer, is if we can get farmers to use biochar as part of their program now and, and get a value, get a, you know, get the, and, and, and be accruing carbon over time, by the time this systems of biochar-based agriculture regenerative agriculture have been in place for 30, 40 years, we're going to see soils that are just coming back alive. Uh, and it won't take that long, five years. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, we've, we've, we're seeing the results of it now. And it's, it's really inspiring. And what happens in agriculture is in so many other things. Where do you learn? You, you look over the fence at your neighbor and see what he's doing. You go, Bob, your corn's looking good, man. What'd you do? I used this new biochar, loaded biochar fertilizer. And, and look at this. Every year, it just keeps getting better and better. And, and you got to keep pumping in fertilizer to get the same effect. Huh? So there is a, it's, it's a different, I use the example, the metaphor, it's a difference between just having a checking account and having a checking and a savings account. Mm -hmm. The carbon in the soil is the savings account and it's there when you need it, but you got to, you got to pull it out of the checking account and get it there. <laughs> Yeah, I want to I want to get to that savings account. So, I'd like to switch over real quickly. So, carbon credits are something that everybody thinks is a great idea. Nobody's well, no, I won't say that. People generally think that's a great idea that we should do whatever we can to pull carbon down, get it into some sort of a form where it's no longer floating around in the atmosphere causing uh global uh climate change. How do you do that? So a whole bunch of very expensive and elaborate schemes have been have, have come up, but in general, they're not adding a functional value. They're just like, okay, we're going to pay so much a ton to remove this carbon, and we're going to put it in a hole in the ground. Or we have a very optimistic idea that we'll plant these trees on some barren hillside in Africa or somewhere, and those trees will fix the carbon. And so we developed a system of carbon trading so that people who are generating companies, airline, for instance, uses a lot of car, generates a lot of carbon. So it wants to do the right thing. And there have been these incentive systems of, and, and a whole carbon trading system was evolved um, in the last decade. Um, but they tried to run it like the New York Stock Exchange. And, you know, carbon trading is the new, is the new, the new stock of the future and and everybody wants to buy futures and the problem was fundamentally in my view uh it's the same guys that are running wall street jumped into the carbon trading and began speculating and and you know and meanwhile these great projects and i've seen some uh, amazing fraudulent disastrous you you plant these trees and then you say, okay, carbon credits, but nobody's checking in five years or how much carbon is actually being sequestered. Mm -hmm. And in any case, in tropical areas, that carbon is going into the above ground biomass. So when somebody comes through to cut some firewood, chow carbon credits, there's are involved in a 
developing, devising a, a, a carbon trading scheme that is based on the blockchain that has uh, it has and it and carbon is the current and biochar is the is the currency of that of that new carbon economy because yes. you can come back and measure it in five years you can accrue it you can you can do fractional um, monetization of it and and you can do this in your backyard okay you go down you buy a carbon value and it may be minuscule but it all adds up into an actual economy and yep. with yep. companies like Microsoft eager to not only be carbon neutral, but to pay back the carbon that they've taken to get them this far, there's a lot of interest in, in realistic carbon credits and, and carbon trading. So we're, we're trying to make it an honest, um, transparent, and accountable system. And we've got some folks sort of, I couldn't even really tell you what a blockchain is, Will, but I, I, <laughs> people much smarter than me. Are are put are are putting this together in fractional monetization, which is going to be this is the one that's that people can actually everybody can have a piece of this action. Yeah, well, you've walked us perfectly to the conversation that we're going to keep having across multiple episodes. I mean, we are just opening this door, and and I want to take a whack at kind of you know repeating what I heard from you to summarize and to paint this picture a bit more. You know, in this last part, we talked about fertilizer mm -hmm. and i think a lot of us understand if you've seen some of the food documentaries or you get that our large scale you know what we'll call industrial farming and then we can call organic farming you know usually at the grocery store we have those two choices yeah. it's pretty straightforward in the produce section you know i think any of us listening are probably going to a supermarket produce store and there's some you know regular or industrially farmed uh, produce that uses pesticides with some level of regulation and there's organic and it's not just pesticides right it's about this soil health but what's really important I think for people to understand is you know those huge large-scale farms that are growing corn and soybeans that are in so many products that we consume at every meal or are feeding right the livestock if you're a meat eater like myself I know you're not yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, it's a big part of our, our world of food and agriculture. That soil is sort of so depleted of the nutrients and minerals that plants need, that those crops need, that basically it's kind of an inert mass. I mean, I'm even surprised you said that it's 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 got 2% of, you know, available carbon because every year, every season, every crop, they have to recharge it with huge deployments of fertilizer, in, in order for that crop to grow. Yeah, not only, not only that, but as the soil gets harder, it takes, it, takes, it takes more horsepower to turn that soil. And so you're, you're just stirring the ashes at this point. Um, yeah. And we're essentially growing crops hydroponically. We're, it, without the, the nutrients that come out of the bag that, that, are, that are applied, crops would really not, we wouldn't have agriculture that's a, that's amazing to think that, that 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 literally the midwest you know in the united states or wherever the largest farming you know region is for you in the industrialized world it is kind of like hydroponic farming and versus what we painted this if you're turning or you're you're you know there's no tilling there's carbon farming but there's turning and tilling biochar the, into the soils and particularly like you said that's pre 
you know, charged or really fertilized, right? Isn't it fair to say that that charged biochar is fertilized? So you take, you know, a biochar that has a fertilizer on it that's going to bond really well because of carbon's ionic ability, like you said, to hold everything. It's kind of like nature's sponge and building block, right? I mean, it's a huge part of us, our physical bodies, and much of the world, and till that in and turn that into the soil, and then it yeah. compounds season over season to continue to develop soil health and allow even farmers to potentially use less fertilizers or use less pesticides. Is that is that right? That that's 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 right. And so now imagine charging our biochar by adding it into poultry farm operations into pig operations where it's in with the manure grabbing those nutrients and there what it's doing on the very front end is grabbing methane and ammonia and and compounds that could be fertilizers but generally just get thrown into a lagoon or go up as stinky greenhouse gases so we're able to incorporate this on the very front end of animal agriculture and turn all that into to great value a much higher quality manure comes comes out of that and as it turns out, when it's included in cows' diets in their feed, in chickens' rations, it, it, they actually are healthier for it. It's kind of like this missing vitamin that, that we've been hiding in plain sight, but we just didn't, we didn't see the, we didn't see the, well, yeah. The, the animals are healthier, the plants are healthier. Yes, and the manure is generating less methane and ammonia, so we're solving you know, these CAFOs are, are a huge source of methane in particular. There are more aspects to this. There are many applications, but picture a fine ground biochar fresh onto a, a lagoon where it floats and forms like a cap on top of these uh, lagoons. And the can... Uh-oh, did I lose you? Yeah, can you hear me? I think we just got a delay. All right, a little uh, a little bumps in the digital road there, but uh, or our path. But we're uh, <laughs> we are. I was saying, going to keep coming back to this conversation. We're really just introducing it to our audience and these exciting solutions. And I just want you know, we were just painting that picture around uh, fertilizer and the charged biochar, and you were saying, you know, even just the beginning of another use of it is to put it on top of these manure lagoons, which is where a yeah. lot of our, you know, meat sources and livestock, chickens, cattle, the manure goes into these lagoons and they just try to let it saturate back into the earth or gas off over time. But you can put a floating layer of biochar on top of that it dampens down some of the smells it absorbs yeah. a lot of all the really you know wonderful honestly nutrients and microbes yeah. and then you can scoop that out of the lagoon and go put it back into your field as fertilizer yes that's it it's exactly right yeah and and that all is a bank i want to get back to the really exciting cutting edge part of this conversation is that you know, and I want to loop or tie this in to how this can impact each listener's life and a, and a vision around that that I really am passionate about exploring here on the path forward is, you know, you are banking that carbon into the soil in a farm um, where your food is grown. 
in a football field, in your backyard. Exactly. In a golf course. <laughs> in your course. garden. Yeah. <laughs> right. In your own garden, you could put charged yeah. biochar fertilizer and till it into your garden for your own food. You know, we can yes. start to request that our cities and towns, you know, our parks departments, I'm in Seattle, yeah. you know, they produce tons and tons of biomass waste that they send yeah. to the same place where my compost goes right at the yeah. landfill why not char some of that and turn it back into whenever they're redoing a play field or anywhere where there's grass you know or an open or just the flower beds and anywhere they're tilling and turning that earth we have you know across a city a mid-sized city like seattle let alone a really big city there are hectares of of parks and and land managed by our cities, let alone where our food comes from. And we could be banking carbon, storing and banking carbon from the atmosphere. And and not in, to be honest, the, like you were saying earlier, the current carbon credits industry, there's some really interesting investigative research for us to do there. And it's it's not to, yeah. to shut them down or poo-poo that or whatever, be overly critical, but, but there's a lot of fuzzy math, let's yeah. just say, at best so in that call, industry. Call them to accountability. Call them to accountability. Right. And, and that's not around us just doing it. Look, you either actually are sequestering carbon and we change the environment and the impacts that we've had on the planet or you don't because the planet doesn't care if you're making up numbers. Yeah, right. Uh, right? Yeah. And, and the trick is, is measurability, right? And this is yeah. a real technological uh, cutting edge and forefront. And there are exciting things going on. We're going to talk to those guys and interview them around the projects of connecting biochar and carbon credits to the blockchain and around how you could measure the biochar and the carbon stored in the farms where your food and your next meal comes from in your own garden and in your own yep. city. Your own little terra preta paradise. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's how, I mean, how else are we going to sequester the kind of carbon that we're talking about? And, and, you know, one of the things around that of like any kind of broad use of the term technology or technological solution to climate change, a lot of it's an experiment. But, you know, in today's conversation, what we talked about here is that the technology of charcoal is very, very well known to us. Here's, here's the thing, Will. Um, the economics of charcoal are, 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 has been a, a slippery and somewhat elusive factor. And, mm. and uh, a good friend, Tom Miles, the, the chairman of the American Biochar Initiative and, a, and, a, and an engineer down in, in Portland, I guess that's up now in Portland, Oregon, has, makes the point that when we really get the biochar economy linked into the mainstream economy, they aren't going to be little biochar plants sitting out in a field somewhere. They're going to be integrated into a place where the waste of a sawmill or an agricultural enterprise is. So we'll bolt these on, so to speak, to existing biomass generating, byproduct biomass generating operations, everything from peanut hulls to rice rice hulls. And I can tell you a story about that, but there's the need to develop the, the term of art that I prefer is industrial symbiosis, where mm. one, one processes 
waste stream is the feedstock for another and they work together and they you know and they then they build these kind of symbioses where where th there's a a synergy uh, and uh, and and a mutual benefit from having co-located industries working together it's yes. the the marketing is is going to be the trick but all we have to do as in so many things is to bring the price down to a certain level and then bingo you're in right now we're at like 50 cents a pound which is high we'd like to have it be 15 cents a pound and you won't get that through mom and pop biochar plants it's i i compare it to the um in the 60s the the communist china's uh great leap forward where they're going to put these little uh iron foundries in everybody's backyard and they did and and they made you know poor quality iron but a lot of it and and sort of jump-started their economy through this very bootstrap approach that's not the way it works in china today but it sort of took going through those steps we're at the great leap forward in mm -hmm. uh in biochar production in the united states right now and it won't take long it won't take long it'll just take a couple of market forces lining up and the carbon credit piece of this i believe is where the the spark plug goes off yeah it's it's measurable that's the thing yeah. is it is potentially very measurable and and i want to mike you just did an exquisite job of exactly what this show is all about. You just described in that vision, in that industrial symbiosis, the path forward. Yep. That is what we're talking about solutions. And to me, my vision of making all of this very tangible and that market force, you know, that you're talking about my vision and interest and, and to continue discussing here, you know, broadcasting, frankly, and developing is that, We've seen an, a, a revolution, really, in your lifetime from the beginning of our conversation of the introduction of permaculture and organic, you know, agriculture and, and organic foods used to be, you certainly remember and saw more of it than me, but <laughs> I remember it, you know, it was available in some funky health food store, right? Oh, it, right, as, as sec yeah, as products in a... In a in a, in a little grubby little co-op somewhere of which I was a part. <laughs> yeah. Amen, brother. And thank you. Thanks for you. And I think many listeners really would appreciate that, that gratitude of, of your and, you know, your, your cohorts work and endeavors. And, and now what we've seen though, through consumer demand is that yep. organic culture yep. is, uh, excuse me, organic produce and foods are everywhere, right? They're, they're in our right. local supermarket, but they're in Walmart and Target. And, yep. and now on top of that, now we have a cage-free eggs, right? And, and poultry. We have grass-fed beef um, and, and poultry. And, and these are products not because, oh, gee, this is wishful thinking and this was a good idea in some fantasy. There's a demand. Yeah. And that's how it gets on the shelves and into Target and into Walmart. And, and you, the listener, are the source of that demand. And if we've been able to demand and start to curve our huge industrial food system to have organic foods and produce and to have grass-fed and cage-free, the next chapter in my mind is how much carbon was sequestered by the next meal that you eat. Yeah, and 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 we can give you a number on that. We have the we have the tools to do that. And 
and it's it's pretty exciting because you know you're talking about that accountability factor mm -hmm. and stable carbon uh, recalcitrant carbon in the form of biochar is long lasting on the order of centuries you can take your um, your dairy manure and put it out there on the field and come back the next year you go where to go well it went into the system we need all forms of carbon what I call full spectrum carbon we need we need a red, readily available so the microbes are well fed we need, and they in turn feed the plants we need long-term carbon so that 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 buildup of uh, the battery um, mm -hmm. and because we're headed for the electric car and electric soil folks <laughs> <laughs> I love it yeah and it's and it's something I think that we can start to ask for as consumers you know and we want to push that development of farmers and our food industry and system you know sequestering carbon and then measuring that and developing this technology yep. and we're going to be talking to you out in the field Mike and to other pioneers and leaders in this industry and movement and help cause this and and really just broadcast these ideas yeah. so that people can start asking for it and and really have an impact you know the thing that's exciting to me is what can i do you know we're kind of in a quandary about climate change i mean my god we're seeing these it's here now with the storms right and and the pandemic in my mind and we'll do another episode of how that is related and there's certainly been other writings and research about that but we're dealing with a dramatically changing system. And, and what do I do about it? I can change the light bulbs in my house, right? Right. You can go to, to CFLs or LEDs. You can choose to drive an electric car. And there's an expense around that. And you can try and hope and push and continue to press that green energy is something that's developed for you and for your use of energy. And you know, if you have the resources, mostly a big company or someone who has enough resources to sequester or offset some of your carbon. But again, we talked about that fuzzy math, but what we could each do is we eat every single day. Yep. And we vote when we vote with our food buying dollars every single day. That's right. That's that's the vision. So I think we, we should probably wind it down there. We've done a, a great job and accomplished everything that I'm so excited to have introduced great. and introduced this concept and yourself, Mike. Um, but are there any last thoughts or anything you, you wanted to share? I think we're, I, I think I'm pretty happy with the direction things are going. It never goes quickly enough. I mean, this is more evolution than revolution, but we've got mm -hmm. to speed it up. And we have the tools at hand. We just have, I, you, you hit it on the head, Will. We vote with our dollars every day. Our choices do matter. Yeah. Choose wisely and insist on accountability. I'll leave it at that. Amen, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Well, let's keep let's keep the good word rolling, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna roll kind of some of the next segment or uh, 
our next small adjoining episode into having a little fun here on the path forward. We always talk about having the main course and this denser idea. We give you a lot of information to start to absorb, but we like to have some nice side dishes. So we're going to have some fun and talk about some current status of film and television and media next with another great guest. All right. Another co-host we get to introduce here on the show. But Mike, I can't thank you enough and my gratitude of having you in my life and continuing to get to explore and share our story and how we know each other and and all these ideas and we're going to bring in people you know you mentioned tom maybe that's the next person we we bring into this conversation yeah he'd be great he'd be great all right all right thank well, you Will. thank you so much for your time and be well and we'll we'll, we'll see you on the other side okay thanks all right path forward yeah path forward